I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Good afternoon, listeners. I'm saying afternoon because that's when I'm recording this, but you might be listening at any time. So welcome back. This is episode 13 of season three. We're getting close to the end, actually. I think there's only a couple more episodes to go. Actually, next week's is super exciting. I interview an old client who's also an old friend, a famous comedian and host of The Last Leg on Channel 4, Adam Hills. He comes on Talking With Cancer next week. So I interviewed him because he experienced his dad had cancer twice, in fact, and it returned as something different. It returned as leukaemia, which was actually the cancer that killed him. And we talked about that experience and he was so positive and infectious and funny and sweet and that's the Adam that I always knew but anyway I'm going to talk about that more next week when um, I play out the interview. This week I speak to a really interesting and um, I want to say entrepreneurial but I think she is. I mean she's a philanthropist I guess. Her name is Mary Olladaly. She's the CEO and founder of Cancer Education UK. And I introduced her in the interview. So I'm not going to talk too much about what she does, but I will just explain this. She works with the BAMA community. And it was actually my lovely producer, Mariam, who said, did you mean to say BAMA or did you mean to say BAME? And BAMA stands for Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic and Refugee Communities. So I just thought it was important to clarify that. Um, and I'm going to play out the interview now. I hope you like it. My guest today is Mary Olladaly. And she is the founder and CEO of Cancer Education UK, which is a charity dedicated to providing cancer education and support to the BAMA communities, as well as those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking With Cancer, Mary. It's lovely to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Katie. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. So amazing that you've set up this charity and obviously I've been reading a bit about it. Mm -hmm. um, you started the charity in 2016. So can you just talk a bit about what kind of led you up to that point, what mm. you were doing professionally? Yeah. How you got to that point, please. Yeah. So at the time I was training to be a therapeutic radiographer. For those who don't know what a therapeutic radiographer is, when someone's diagnosed with cancer, you can either have chemo, surgery, radiotherapy. So radiotherapy is basically what I was specialising to do and to deliver to patients. I was doing it at Geisen St Thomas Hospital, and that area is quite close to South East London, which is basically where you have, you know, Camberwell, 
Peckham, you know, all those areas, very, very close. And those areas are known for high level of deprivation. So people, you know, black people especially were coming in with diagnosis of cancer, you know, presenting really late. Um, some of them were not choosing to have treatment. Some of them were not interacting with cancer services or cancer charity services that we had or support services that we had. And being originally Nigerian myself, I had already known the stigma attached to people. So from there, I thought, you know, why didn't I start something small for like aunties and uncles? And from there, that was where we basically started. And I registered it as a charity. And then we've just started from there. How long were you practicing as a therapeutic radiographer? So I was practicing for about five years. Okay. So what point did the kind of the light bulb go off and you go, hang on a minute, I'm seeing a trend here. Hmm. how far in did you kind of recognize that it was in my third year so it's a three-year course you're in uni and at the same time you're going to placement kind of like a nursing degree so you have to do you know the clinical side and the academic side at the same time there was a particular experience I actually had so for each and every task that you have to do you have to do it with a qualified person and they have to sign you off so I was in this chat, what we call a pre-treatment chat with this lady, an elderly Nigerian lady. She reminds me a lot of my grandma, honestly. Every time I tell this story, I just see her face. and I You've see got my... a big smile on your face. <laughs> <laughs> I just see her and I see my grandma's face. And my grandma's very dear to me. So I remember being in the room with her and you know, she'd just been diagnosed with cancer. And a lot of the things she said, you know, she didn't want to have chemo. She didn't want to have a picture taken because she knew people in the in the trust and she felt like they might find out one day and they might see her picture and find out that she had cancer so she refused Whoa. some treatments there are just so many different things that's unbelievable to me you recognize that as being specifically because of her cultural identity and background around yeah and so many things she said she went on to talk about the fact that she felt that god had failed her she felt that you know she'd served god all her life and she was retiring now so she felt like oh my gosh you know why is this happening now why is it that when i'm retired about to enjoy life as i can say why is that happening now so you know all these things are you know, myths that people have. And I think society and cultures really allowed it to continue. So, yeah. Do you think that there was empathy on your part because you could relate to these ethnicities and particularly this woman who, did you say she was Nigerian as well? Yes, yes, yes. And so did you recognise that way of thinking from your own background and family? Yeah, definitely. Um, I know that for a fact because, you know, before her, I'd been going to like my local church and mosque and kind of talking about it. And in that, you know, a lot of people, even aunties that I knew, I never knew they had cancer. People would come to me after the talk and be like, oh, yeah, they had cancer. And I was just like, wait, what? You did? Like, but they all kept it so harsh. And so for her as well, I could see that this was, you know, a common trend that was happening as well and I think that a lot of the things she said you know part of the main reason why she didn't want to have chemo was because of the fact that she'll lose her hair and then she wouldn't be able to go to church and people would want to come and visit her you know there's several things and the culture and how you know I think African people or you know people from different backgrounds are they are very much with their family so I knew what she was talking about and I knew how 
the society would treat her and I, you know, I could just empathise with her. So it sounds like you felt like you could make a difference. You could really bring about some sort of change. Yeah, very much. And that's what led you to start the charity. How did you go about doing that? You've already said you registered it as a charity. Yeah, what does your work do? Can you just yeah. tell us a bit more about it, please? Definitely. So we go into the community and we teach people um, about signs and symptoms of cancer. So we tell them about, you know, these are the symptoms you might notice. And these are screening programs under the NHS that they should attend. So like the blood screening, a smear test. And really talking about to them about why it's important. And then we also go on within this session to talk about the fact that, you know, rebuilding your trust within healthcare professionals as well. So, of course, we do that. Another part of the things that we do is we speak to healthcare professionals and how they can you know, develop their relationship with you know, with people like this. We know it's really hard for them to engage with, with these communities as well. The third thing that we do is we speak to people and we let them know that, you know, all these cultural myths and all these questions that they have, we kind of debunk it and say, you know, it's not actually so. It's not so. You know, I could share stories for days because the myths have really been so damaging that it's affected people's choice of treatment and so on. And when people are diagnosed with cancer, we give them support. So we offer grocery shopping, we offer complementary therapy, we offer um, physio services as well. And so we try to make life easier for them where we know that we can meet them at their point of need because you know other charities will let you know that they struggle in communicating or in reaching out to you know people from our community as well and lastly from a personalized care point of view we help women get back into not just women to be honest people after cancer treatment get back into the community and workplace more confidently as well because once they've gone through that cancer treatment, it takes a knock back on their confidence, on their, mm. you know, their morale, on how they see themselves as a whole. And so we kind of help move them back better and stronger when, they, when they're ready. Could you share some of those myths? Could you share a couple of those stories? You've already talked about the lady that reminded you of your grandma and how she felt around the religious side of things. What mm. other examples have you got? So people believe that, you know, cancer is not black people thing or it's not something that can touch them. And I guess there's a long discussion about why that is, why they feel like that. So, yeah, that's one of the popular ones. One is that, you know, if you wear a bra at night or if you wear a bra to sleep, you get cancer from that. Or if you put this, if you eat this, then you would get cancer as well in your food or to the extent that people believe that if you associate with someone who has cancer, then you would get it yourself. Almost to say, as if cancer is an infectious disease, it's definitely not COVID, it's not contagious <laughs> in any way, shape or form. And also that if you have it, then that means you're definitely going to die. You know, even my grandma said that. She's, you know, she said it one day. She's like, oh, you know, that cancer thing, once someone has it, that's the end. I'm like, come on, no, let's not be saying that. We're both doing a similar thing, you and I, Mary, because we're demystifying oh, wow. it, aren't we? You know, that's what I'm doing, talking about it on a podcast, living with cancer in a way that, People don't see cancer when they look at me, you know, and I'm living with it every day. And I think, you know, it's really interesting. There are so many myths 
around, but I never have thought about those myths being down to someone's ethnicity, you mm. know, and their heritage. So that's really interesting to kind of learn that through talking to you. You touched on the health practitioners. I'm interested on that side of things. What are some of the tips or skills or advice that you give them in order to help, you know, bust these myths and encourage people to come and get checked earlier? Mm -hmm. I think for us as a whole, the main thing is, so we know within these communities, there's already this huge um, lack of trust and lack of presentation. So we let them know that I think sometimes it's easier to almost just acknowledge that, okay, this person has cancer. But I think the most important thing is that the way, and I always say this, the way two people would receive their cancer diagnosis is so different. So someone who comes from an ethnic minority background, the last person they are thinking about is themselves when they hear they've got cancer. They're thinking about the society. They're thinking about, you know, family back home. They're thinking about, okay, are they still going to be able to work? Because most of the time, they're most likely supporting one, like so many different peoples. And how is that going to affect them as a whole? And if they're going to have to deal with that all alone. So it's making them aware about this is how people like this thing that you might not necessarily be aware about as well. And when I was training, I think there are certain things that, you know, as healthcare professionals, you're not taught about. But people need to understand that there's so many things that make that person that person you know the cultural side is there the you know the soul the mind the body and how they see all of that as a whole that's what they need to encompass into when they're talking to people so for example whether they're doing their first day chat whether they're doing a follow-up chat so one we let them know about that you know be conscious about that as well and there are also things like religion that causes people to that puts up that wall for people already so, you know, sometimes the wordings we use, some cultures, some religions already, in their mind, it puts that barrier down whereby they don't want to kind of talk about it already. And what then happens is they're less likely to be responsive to whatever information you're giving them or whatever treatment that they're going to accept. So, yeah, they sound like little, you know, very, very small things, but they make a whole, it matters to a lot of people and it makes the bigger picture as a whole. Well, I think what I understand is that you're saying for these professionals, they have to contextualise mm. who this person is, you know, who's coming to see them. And if they have a greater understanding and a learning of certain kind of belief systems within those different cultures, yeah. then they can see the bigger picture. Yeah. And I think that's such a brilliant ta sort of tactic and a brilliant strategy. And again, what you're saying is language. Language is huge. I do a whole episode on language on this podcast and how, you know, I experience personally a huge difference in different professionals, practitioners who I would go to see, you know, from nurses to radiographers to oncologists, it's so impactful, mm -hmm. the language that they use. It can be impactful in a good way or a bad way. Yeah. And so I think that's, again, a brilliant thing that you're recognising as part of the education that you're providing. 
What are some of the statistics? I've heard a few things like black men are more likely to get prostate cancer than white men. What Have you got some of those numbers? Yeah, even um, black women are more likely to have breast cancer and are more likely to have even more aggressive, you know, breast cancer than, than their counterparts as well. You know, even breast screening, breast screening is lower within um, minority ethnic groups than their white counterparts as well. You know, the rate is about 38% compared to 58% in other areas as well. You know, women from ethnic minority backgrounds as well are less likely to even attend even a cervical screening, um, screening appointments as well. And again, I think sometimes it boils down to those languages and so many different avenues as well or so many different things factors that add to the reason why these statistics are so shocking but yeah what do you hope to achieve with the organization where how do you want things to change and what's your kind of goalposts if you like um i think for us it would be that people I think people from ethnic minority communities, refugees, even those from low socioeconomic backgrounds who might not have the proper you know, education or cannot articulate themselves correctly. I think the goal is for them to be able to speak about cancer, talk about cancer confidently and freely as well. I think from those conversations, it allows people to know that, you know, People can have cancer, like you rightly mentioned, that people can live with cancer and absolutely still be fine. You know, it doesn't mean it's a... Death it, sentence. It, it, it's a death sentence, ultimately. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's so many people I know who are, you know, who are living with terminal cancer and they're doing absolutely fine. You're doing great work, in fact. And I think another thing is that it's okay for, um, for people to attend screening programs, especially this is why they're there. They, you know, it's to, you know, if there is cancer, to catch cancer early and to detect it and to go through, you know, treatment as quick as possible. For us to improve those statistics, because each and every time we look at those statistics, that's someone's mom, that's someone's dad, that's someone's mm -hmm. daughter. And we have to... Remember that those statistics, we have to bring it back to the human side of things that we need things to improve more than ever. It's, it's a shame that, you know, we are told that it's one in two people now. And it'd be a shame that our whole population are still afraid to talk about cancer. My vision will be to see that, you know, people from this community still trust in the NHS. We could go on and on about it. You know, people are making really, really life-changing decisions that are scary because of the lack of mistrust within the energy services so yeah yeah that's a big mountain that last <laughs> one but I feel like you like climbing mountains and you like that challenge I just want to ask you because you've touched on some of the support that you provide yes. to those cancer patients it sounded amazing can you just talk a little bit more about that, how the charity helps those individuals who are living with cancer. In terms of the process, how they can go about it or what we Yeah, get. if someone wanted to reach out, what might they be able to get as access and help and support from the charity? Yeah, so they can go to our website, which is www.cancereducationuk.org. There's a self-referral form on there and they just need to fill it in. So we would ask for like a clinic letter or any kind of letter um, to be attached to that form and they can send it to us. And then what then happens is if they've 
indicated in that um, form that they would like some grocery shoppings and the grocery shopping is just to support um, patients so of course when they're going through cancer treatments not for them to worry about food as well because you know the constant going back and forth to hospital that already takes a, a huge dive into their pocket as well so they're not worrying about how to feed as well or feed themselves or their family so that's one of the examples and one of the things that we then do is that we then look at the area they're in we team them up with one of our volunteers and then we ask them you know is there anything they're allergic to is there anything that they don't want to eat at all or they can't eat at all and then we basically create a shopping list and send it to one of our volunteers who does the shopping and then delivers it to their doorstep that's lovely so if someone wants to volunteer do they go to the same place yeah. yeah, they can go to the website or contact us on info at cancereducationuk.org and then just send us an email that they'd like to volunteer or go on the website. There's a Be Get Involved tab on the uh -huh. website and fill the form and we can go from there. Yeah. Are you looking for volunteers at the moment? Uh, yeah. yeah. Really and are you based all around the UK? We are based all around the UK. So, yeah, we like to stretch ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and what if someone wants to donate? Do you do fundraising as well? So we want to do fundraising. That is probably one of the things that we want to get into next year. We've attempted it, but we haven't quite got it right. As I say, we're still growing. There's still mm -hmm. some we really need to kind of need to key and work on but to donate yes just go to our website again and there is a tab that takes you to a secure area to donate okay and people should watch this space for the opportunity to fundraise yes, you've probably got a very long to-do list haven't you and that's somewhere on it ever growing ever growing <laughs> ever growing i wish it would be just a few things but i don't know if that's ever possible <laughs> Oh, yes. we'll think it's really good work that you're doing. And I'm sure it's come with a lot of challenges to get you where you are today. So well done. And um, thank you so much for chatting to me on thank Talking so With much. Cancer, Mary. Yeah, it's been really interesting to learn about this, actually. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And you're doing amazing work as well. You're doing really, really amazing work. I mean, when I read your bio, I was blown away because I worked at Marsden for a few Oh, sure. did you, Mary? Oh, yeah. They're quite amazing there, aren't they? I'm not even going to lie. They are amazing there. And the work they do is really, really mind-blowing. So, yeah. I know. I felt very lucky that it was quite early on when, when the guys that were treating me, well, they hadn't got treat, hadn't got that far. They diagnosed me and they were like, we're going to send you to the Royal Marsden for a second opinion. And I didn't really understand what was going on or, you know, what this world was. And then I suddenly realised, OK, I'm at the cancer hospital i'm pretty lucky to be there but the flip side of that is i have a rare cancer so you know <laughs> when i worked i think for patients and even for staff it's a great environment to definitely definitely be in mm, i agree i agree oh it's great chatting to you mary thank you so much thank you as well So that was my chat with the wonderful Mary Olladaly. I think she's got a great mission there and I think she's going to do and continue to do really good work. I think it's interesting. I talked about this with the death doula, Emma, Emma Clare, 
And it's something that Mary and I talked about in that interview. I talked about it with Rebecca, who wrote the Modern Loss Handbook. What we're doing, us people who are talking about difficult subjects, is we are demystifying what we think those topics are about. So there's often a topic which has stigma attached to it. It might have taboo attached to it. It might be presented in the world in a way which is just really unreal and really untrue. And people like us are kind of standing up and going, let's actually talk about what this stuff is really like. And I think it's interesting that she's found a community that have got such a different perspective on what cancer is. And I think the idea that um, culturally it's seen as something that is God-given is, you know, probably more common than people actually might think. And the reason I say that is because I've had a couple of conversations with friends and they've expressed to me that they feel that an illness they might be experiencing or have experienced or the way they're feeling, you know, they might be feeling a bit down, is sort of punishment. It's kind of something that they almost, like, deserved for a wrongdoing that they did. These people that I'm talking about, they're not actually from the Bema community. This is what I'm saying. Like, I think that this belief actually runs through across a lot of communities. And it's so interesting to me, because I don't feel that, cancer is karmic. I don't feel that I was kind of given cancer because of something that I did in my life. Like I don't have that sort of religious belief anyway. I think it's clear from my podcast that I have a a spiritual sort of outlook on life and a kind of spiritual relationship with the world. And maybe what that means is that actually what I try to look for is the meaning in what's happening to me, or a way to view it that's different to perhaps how society might have said I should view it or feel about it. And I think what I mean by that is like exactly what's going on right now for me, which is that I came back from my appointment with my oncologist, Dr. Kate Newbold, following the three-month scan that I had done last week. And, you know, it was something that I had a little hunch about. You know, the last three months, I felt really well, but I have said, I just don't know what's going on inside my body. And the scan has shown that the cancerous lymph nodes that I have have actually started to grow a little bit. So there's they sort of get measured in, in millimetres and Dinch did a very quick calculation and he said to me this morning, you know, it's about 20% or a little bit more that they've grown by. And what that means is that, like, I don't know when that growth might have happened. Like, I've got all sorts of questions that I'll never have answers to, like... Has that growth just started in the last few weeks? Has that been a very gradual growth in the last three months? Like, I don't know, and I'll never know. But what it means is that I'm facing a year since I was diagnosed. I'm facing that anniversary. It's coming up on the 15th of February. 
And even within that short time, like that's one treatment. We've kind of done that. Thank you very much. Done and dusted. That's me clapping my hands. Let's try something else. And it throws up all sorts of things. I mean, there's the sort of the technical side to it, which is that we have to try and figure out what's going on. So we know that the ontrectinib only works up to a certain point and then the cancer becomes sort of like resistant to the treatment. But like, is there something else happening? And so I have to go through like a series of tests we have to do another biopsy. There's one cancerous lymph node that's perfectly placed on my collarbone. And so it's quite accessible. So from there, we'll do another biopsy and check like what's in that tumor. Like, is it still the ROS1, which is the mutating gene that we've been treating and that turned on the cancer in the first place? Is it something different that's come up? Should we be looking to treat the thyroid cancer now? That's what my oncologist is suggesting. She's suggesting that we look at a different targeted treatment that will treat, is often used to treat people with thyroid cancer that are radioactive resistant like me. And it's proved to be effective and it's proved to be effective for up to 18 months, at which point the patients that have used that treatment start to see progression again. So all of this sort of strategy is just about sort of buying more time. And of course, what I feel is like, let's just keep buying that time until something really amazing comes along. And that's also possible because, you know, there are other drugs in the pipeline, as we know, and there are new drugs coming onto the market all the time. And what I know is, what I'm lucky to know is that my team at the Royal Marsden are across those new treatments. So there's still some unknowns. And this morning there was a multidisciplinary team meeting and I know I was discussed at that meeting. And then tomorrow I have a follow-up call with Dr. Newbold about what was discussed. And I think I will be going straight into tests and, you know, a couple of weeks, probably maybe not even that long of just trying to determine what the next treatment's going to be. And then I've got to come off the ontrectinib and then I've got to wait four weeks and basically be on no treatment at all for four weeks until they put me on whatever the new drug is. It's been less than 24 hours that I've known about this, and I kind of sound very okay, don't I? I'm sort of trying to process it. It's a funny period of, like, I get the bad news, and Dinch and I don't really know, like, what to say or, you know, we kind of go over what's been discussed. That's what we do to sort of just get it clear in our head. This is definitely what was talked about, right? And I try to kind of normalise stuff. And then I go to sleep. I did wake up in the night and I did kind of think and ruminate over lots of things like how long do I have to live? Or how many of these kind of appointments will I be having over the course of my life? And what if, what if the new treatment's not good? What if it doesn't work? What if there's bad side effects? Loads of those questions. And then I woke up this morning and I was quite teary 
a dear friend of mine's sister sent me this gorgeous message with a lovely poem that she'd written, which was just so moving and so, so sweet. And it got me crying and I needed to cry. I really needed to cry because there is a lot of sadness as well. And it's weird because I don't think I've cried on here on my own, but here I go. You know, this is really sad at the end of the day. And I think like it definitely comes in waves. You know, I've had such a great three or four months. We've traveled so much this past year. We've made amazing memories. And I'm going to go through a period of a bit of a shit bit now. And I don't know what that looks like. And I don't know what that feels like. It's like I said last week, and it's like the post I said, New Year, like, happy new unknown. Like, this is another unknown. And... I've started so many years, <laughs> like, with shit. It's just so weird now. Like, I can't really remember a year where I was like, oh, something massive just landed in my lap. Thanks for that. And so that's where I find myself. I find myself so many mixed feelings about what this means and just trying to go on the journey. That's literally all I can do. And trying to be patient about what comes up when and trying to trust the people in charge. I mean, look, it's my decision at the end of the day, but like I trust my team. It, like I absolutely trust and believe that they will be thinking about the best next thing for me. And so I have to wait really and see what unfolds and you know just stay positive I think and just stay in that mindset like this may be good this may be bad and I really don't know so that's where I am sorry for the um the heavy offload but as ever you know this podcast is keeping it real <laughs> um I wanted to introduce my voice with cancer this week because it was really quite moving, actually. I got the most incredible email from someone who came across the podcast. He actually said, I wish that my nurses had known about and pointed me in the direction of your podcast before I started my treatment. He came across the podcast when I think he was a few months into treatment. He got diagnosed with terminal GOJ cancer and he had just turned 56 when he got the diagnosis. Um, I was so blown away by how impactful he found this podcast and got back to him straight away, of course, to kind of thank him for sharing his story and asked him, like, would you like to be a voice with cancer? So I'm going to play out his voice note now. Over to you, Steve. Hello, my name's Stephen, and the day before my 56th birthday, I was diagnosed with stage 4 gastroesophageal junction cancer spread to 12 lymph nodes. The prognosis at the time, 11 months. As you can imagine, being told of a terminal illness was not the best birthday surprise I've ever had. In February last year, I had a jelly baby and I felt it going down very, very slowly. This in itself was quite a strange feeling, but it caused alarm bells to sound. 
and as a result, my wife Claire suggested I get checked out as soon as possible. With a referral, I underwent my first endoscopy that showed the tumour and a CT scan that same afternoon and confirmed the worst. I still recall the imaging staff saying to me, it's okay, you'll get chemotherapy. But on five milligrams of midazolam, this didn't really register that well at the time. Although I was told I had cancer, it took three endoscopies and 22 biopsies to identify finer tumour detail. And this way, it was so frustrating. I started a therapy on a drug called oxaliplatin and I could barely walk out of the hospital. In addition, I had terrible pain in my arm where it was infused, which resulted in the placement of a power port, which, to be honest, was fantastic. Unfortunately, the oxaliplatin left me with an embolism in each lung, two heart defects, and I now require that with pardon injections, which I really don't enjoy. Due to the severe side effects of oxaliplatin, my oncologist decided to replace it with carboplatin, which is like out the frying pan into the fire. The drug was definitely kinder in my body with regards to pain, however, still caused severe fatigue in addition to other debilitating side effects. I personally feel that a positive mental attitude is required to get us through chemotherapy. Belief for me is definitely number one. Setting would be maintaining fitness and strength, and thanks to my wife Claire and her two spaniels, I was encouraged to go walks, even when my body was telling me otherwise. Third, I would say eat and drink as well as you can and ensure your daily protein levels are maintained throughout. I also undergo argon beam diathermy, courtesy of my wonderful general surgeon, Mr. Kassem. This procedure is carried out every six to eight weeks to ensure my tumour does not restrict my ability to eat or drink, which is vital. Weirdly enough, I look forward to this procedure, as for me it's like an interim MOT and it helps me through my battle with this disease. Summing up, I wish I'd known about Katie's wonderful podcast that started my journey. Although in college and staff, give you important clinical information. It's more general. Katie's podcasts, however, are real life stories that resonate with me personally. All cancers are very different. When we listen to Katie and our guests, our journeys are very, very similar. Katie, keep up the good work. Oh, Steve. Well, I think you're so brave for sharing that. It's just amazing to hear someone else going through something that's so life-changing and so hugely challenging. And yet, look at us, we find a little bit of hope in that. I've written to you about your dogs since receiving the voice note, and I know they sound like amazing little four-legged friends. So I hope you're continuing to get out and about with them as much as possible. And thanks again for being so kind about the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me again this week, guys. And don't forget to go to the podcast, rate and review and click the follow button, not the subscribe button, which I said last week and Marianne corrected me. So yeah, click the follow button, rate and review, keep listening. Do tell your friends about the podcast and share it with anyone that you think it might help, anyone who's been impacted by cancer in some way or another illness or anything life-challenging or neither of the above. It's really great to have you. I can't wait for you to tune in next week to the Adam Hills interview. It's a real treat. I'll see you then. Bye.